Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Hello everyone, welcome to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. That was Sally with Out of the Pan. She's on every Sunday at 12 o'clock and she finished with the Divinals Casual Encounters. My name's Trevor and I'm joined by my co-host Carolyn. Hello. And I'd like to just personally say that I'd acknowledge we are on the lands of the Rundry people and pay respects to elders past and present. And remember that this land is stolen and what that means with sovereignty never ceded and how we should be thinking about that with a lot of what we do as we live and work and exist on this land. Mm -hmm. We have a special guest today. We do. We would like to introduce Georgie Purcell. Hello. Thank you for having me on today. Thank you for coming. We're excited that you can be here. (laughs) Yeah. And a guest in the studio, which is nice. I know. I know. Oh, it's so much better in person. It is. Yeah. Really, really Sorry, everyone at home, you're missing out. Yeah. I mean, we'd love to invite you in. We'll, we'll get everyone in the studio one day. But. Yeah. So people probably know that Georgie is an Animal Justice Party member of parliament and was elected in late um, 2020. So congratulations, Thank Georgie. You. Very exciting. But I thought we'd start off by talking um, a bit about you and your background and you know, you talked before about an affinity, strong affinity that you have with animals from, you know, a young age, your journey into veganism. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my connection with animals started at a really young age and I think that's a very common experience and it's something that sort of, I guess, pushed out of us or um, it's normalised to treat animals poorly as we get older and we begin to accept it. And I grew up in a small country town um, and the majority of businesses in the town was was farming of animals and mm. my parents lived on a highway and I was learning to ride my bike and I saw a truck full of pigs. I was four years old and I absolutely adored pigs. I just watched Babe. Uh, it was mm. in the 90s and uh, so I was obsessed with pigs and I knew how smart they were from from watching it. And I said to my parents, oh, where are the, where are the pigs going? And I'm really thankful that my parents were honest with me. I think it's something that a lot of children aren't given. And when they told me in the sort of uh, nicest way possible, I said, I, I just don't want to do that anymore. And they respected that decision. And uh, from there, I think I just felt this, you know, really strong connection to animals. And I, I think injustice in general, I was always mm. that child mm. at school that was wanting to, you know, raise money for different uh, groups and organisations and causes and campaigns. And 
uh, that activism was just, I think, born in me. And I think it comes from um, my family as well. So even though I'm sort of the first person that's uh, political, uh, as in a political role in my family, I'm really thankful I grew up in a family where we spoke about, um, you know, refugees and asylum seekers from a young age at the kitchen table when we had dinner and we spoke about animal issues and we spoke about environmental issues. So it just seemed like a natural progression for me to go the way that I have and Mm. you know then I grew up and started working on campaigns to help animals so I was working on the campaign to end duck shooting and the campaign to end jumps racing and the campaign to ban puppy farms and then it sort of just clicked to me that all of those campaigns we were asking for the law to be changed Mm. and I realized that we needed people in political power to change the law for animals. Mm. So how old were you when you were first, like, thinking about, I guess, yeah, when, when it became from just issues to politics or, like, when you made that link? Yeah, so it was just a pure coincidence that while I was working on the campaign to ban jumps racing, I was at a protest outside a race course in 2012. And I remember it really clearly because it's really quite amazing to look back on now. Someone came up to me and said, there's this new political party for animals called the Animal Justice Party. We're trying to get to 50 members. Do you want to join? And <laughs> I, so I joined. So that's over 10 years ago now. And mm. I just was active as a member and a volunteer and helped out on election wow. campaigns. And I never really considered running as a candidate myself. And, of course, the party grew and uh, we got our first MP, Andy Medic, elected in 2018. And... Um, from that moment, I think the party sort of really went to a new level and people yeah. took us more seriously and, and we could show that, um, yes, we care about animals, but we are also progressive and, you know, are just on other issues too. And um, I just got encouraged to run by people sort of internally within the party and also mm. uh, because I was working for Andy, people inside Parliament um, asked me to step up and, yeah, so I just gave it a go and I ended up here. But <laughs> I, prior to that, I was actually working in um, always very sort of politically adjacent roles, so in the mm. union movement and campaigning on, um, you know, uh, for working people in a range of ways. And I think that um, I'm very lucky that my whole adult working life, I've done a job that's related to a cause or an issue that I care about. And, yeah, um, yeah so politically involved in, in many ways, not just animals. Mm. Yeah. And what about um, like other issues that you might not have been involved in at that level, but mm. are there other issues that are either really important to you on a personal level or that you've been involved in in different levels over the years outside of animal and union things? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the union stuff is very important to me and I worked on a, a campaign to end sexual harassment in hospitality when I was doing that and I think that's probably a good segue into just a broader sort of um, women's issues movement and um, very, you know, very much committed to now in my role as a parliamentarian but prior to that um issues around, you know, safe access to abortions Mm. and reproductive services, um, asylum seekers and refugee issues. Um, I actually had the very great privilege recently of um, connecting with someone that was uh, locked up in the uh, Puff prison, a asylum seeker, and and then we got to meet when he got released. And Mm. I think that you know that these what's going on to asylum seekers and refugees is absolutely appalling in this country. But 
that was my first experience actually meeting with someone and connecting with someone and and he'd Mm. uh, come here when he was 18 and uh, he got out when he was 29 and um, I was 29 at the time when I met him and we we went for a walk we'd been texting each other in the time that um, he was still locked up and I just had this moment of like how many things have happened in my life between I was 18 and 29 Mm. and he was in a hotel room the whole yeah. time, just with a window and, you know, no access to that outdoors. So I think, you know, unfortunately being elected at a state level, I don't have a whole lot of um, political power to to act on that, but I'll always be an active advocate in the space. And yeah. yeah, that real sort of personal connection, I think, reminds you about how important it is to fix those laws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask on that, Sorry to put you on the spot here a bit, but some people try to really separate, I guess, animal issues from other social Mm. justice issues. And I was wondering, have you had much experience either dealing with people who refuse to see the the linking and the, the relation between those issues or how you've handled that in the past or when you've been more aware of how they're related and... Yeah, absolutely. I get that in many ways. So uh, going back to what I said to you before, just a few days ago, I posted on my social media about the importance of safe and affordable access to abortion services in Victoria. Mm. And I was really disappointed to get a number of vegans and animal activists actually come out against me on that to say that it wasn't vegan to have that position. And, you know, to me, my <laughs> my yeah. veganism and Um, My veganism is about autonomy for animals. I don't want people Mm -hmm. making decisions over their lives and their bodies that aren't other people's to make. And we should allow the same for people as well. And, you know, I very much believe in total liberation and that, you know, um, you know, no, as long as anyone's oppressed, nobody is free. And I think that it's really drawing us back as a movement that mm. we can't see the links between, mm. you know, the way that we treat animals and the way that we treat people and the way that we treat marginalised communities. And um, we need to be active in all those spaces. And I think it's very, very important as well to show those other movements um, about what we're calling for as well. The social justice movement in general is very, very good at working together um, and the animal activism community needs to join into that space as well. I agree, yeah. It's sort of like the almost like a missing piece at the moment or often left out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Musical chairs yeah. sort of way, like just not quite fitting in all the time. Totally. And when you look at sort of like the climate and the environmental movement, which has absolutely skyrocketed in the past few years, um, we should be active in that space because we all know mm. here in this room um, what one of the biggest climate culprits is in this mm. country. It's obviously mm. an animal agribusiness. And I think by not tapping into those spaces, we're doing animals and that cause themselves an injustice because so many people involved in it just just don't know that as well. And mm. we need to mm. diversify and, you know, expand out because, um, you know, getting solutions for animals um, is great, but, you know, we need to fix all injustices. Yeah. And I've even seen some people say they've used that, I guess, that issue to as a reason to, to st- stay against it. They've said, oh, because climate and environment is so, um, you know, the, the, the impacts of animal agriculture is so detrimental on that, mm-hmm. yet these people who are fighting climate and environment issues might not be vegan themselves. Mm-hmm. 
and they use that as an excuse to not even get involved. They yeah. say that they're hypocrites mm. and they refuse to get involved yeah. rather than actually joining in, mm-hmm. like seeing that there's common ground and then leading by example and saying, well, actually, yeah, and if you want to do more, this is how you do more. That's exactly right. And I'm very big in the leading by example now as yeah. I've gotten yeah. older and sort of more progressed into my, I guess, career or time in the animal protection movement, I used to be one of those people um, when I first went vegan and I was very upset and very angry about all the awful things happening to animals and I didn't want to associate with anyone that um, thought differently and that's and just doing... understandable as well, like mm. to go through that mm. sort of phase. Yeah, totally. But that I, I think now looking back on it, that just does a disservice to animals um, mm. and, you know, every other movement that we could be joining in with. Uh, so I would really love to see people from our community not just getting involved uh, in those spaces but supporting, you know, supporting those movements as well and being active activists. Yeah, which I think it is happening. It's just not the majority yet mm-hmm. like it's, a, it's a minority of animal advocates or mm-hmm. um, environmental groups that are sort of really working together mm-hmm. but hopefully that can become the majority soon because it well it needs to because yeah. mm-hmm. we're running out of time mm-hmm. yeah can't, couldn't agree more i think building relationships and alliances is absolutely paramount mm-hmm. to um, any effort moving towards total liberation. Yeah. So, mm. And I think also, you know, I really understand the sort of position of ideological purity because I've been there too. Yeah. But, you know, we've got to not let perfection be the enemy of good and perfection stop us from some progress and, you know, the way that we're going to, you know, achieve things is actually having more people um, in a position to, um, you know, vote and introduce legislation and having conversations with people who don't um, think the same way as us. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't just stay in our little, mm-hmm. you know, our little bubble. So, yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Did you want to mention a little bit about Oscar's Law and your involvement with that? Because mm. you mentioned it before, but maybe a lot of people aren't aware of exactly what happened with that campaign or yeah what your absolutely and I think it's an important part of my political story because it was def- I had a light bulb moment while working with Oscar's Law so from about 2016 um, I took on a uh, role on the board of Oscar's Law which is Australia's most uh, I guess forefront campaign to end puppy farms and the sale of puppies in pet shops across the country and we can't do that on a national legislative level because the uh, governance of puppy farms is uh, st- by state legislation. So we mm. decided that we needed to work state by state and Victoria made sense because we were all located here and there was a lot of puppy farms in Victoria. Oscar's Law has existed uh, for a number of years now, long before I came along, uh, officially formed in 2010, and I was always a supporter. I actually first heard about them when I was still in high school and, um, you know, very passionate about ending puppy farms. But um, we worked on a campaign at the 2014 state election um, when I was just a volunteer at the time and uh, we worked with the campaign to end jumps racing and duck shooting as well and we said let's have a big rally in the city and put a lot of political pressure on. We had a Liberal government at the time mm-hmm. and say we said if we can solve any of our problems, this is a really good example of working together actually, uh, if we can solve any of our campaigns or our issues that's a win for all of us it's a win for animals and we had this rally and the opposition which was labor at the time came along and said if we're elected uh, we will ban puppy farms and the sale of puppies in pet shops so we thought that's great and then uh, the labor obviously won and they've been in government since and I had the really 
uh, amazing privilege of working with the Minister for Agriculture at the time when I moved into the role of president of Oscars Law, working alongside Deb Tranter, who was a founder, and we worked with the state Labor government to uh, come up with this piece of legislation that um, would see puppy farms essentially legislated out of existence, regulated mm. out of existence. You actually can't a legislative ban on puppy farms because they're not legally defined, which was a real challenge that we faced. Wow. And mm. yeah, I, we it went for debate in 2016 and we went into the parliament for it. And the moment it passed, which was a very, very early hours in the upper house where I now sit, I just had that moment where I was like, you can use, you know, we can change the law to save animals. It's a really, really powerful tool. And then, yeah, a year later, um, after that, puppies were no longer able to be sold in pet shops and the legislation's rolled out in full now. We were the first state to do it and it was so politically popular that Western Australia's done it now, South Australia's mm. about to do it. Our MP in New South Wales, Emma Hurst, is also trying to do the same. She had a Liberal government up until yeah. recently but now has a Labor government and we're feeling really hopeful that they'll do the same there. So I find mm. with animal issues, there's often once the first one pulls a pin, there's a little yeah. bit of a domino effect and that's what we saw, which was yeah. awesome. And also probably good for you to see, I guess, that process from start mm -hmm. to finish yeah. of political change, like what it took, how yeah. long it took and what each of those steps yeah. were along the yeah. way and then to finally see. The Absolutely. Yeah. And seeing puppy farms that we had exposed before in the past and we'd had investigators go undercover in, close down mm. and oh, surrendering right. their dogs to us. Wow. It was very cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Shall we have a song break? I think we are. So what's the first song you'd like to play? The Georgie? first song is called Animals by Architects. And the reason I've chosen this song is because I'm a very keen runner. And this is a song that I play when I run, when I'm feeling like I need a bit of a pep up. But they're also an all vegan band that I recently mm. met. And they are very cool. Oh, that's right. I got to meet them. That. I got to meet them. I got to go backstage. It was awesome. <laughs>
Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori dash kids dash shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR. Before the break, you heard Architects with Animals. And today it's myself, Trevor, and Carolyn. Hello. We're joined by a special guest, Georgie Purcell. G'day. <laughs> and we just finished talking about, I guess, a bit of background on Georgie and what yeah. got her involved in politics. Mm. And now we wanted to chat a bit about... I guess your first main stint in politics, which was Chief of Staff with mm. Andy Medic. Yeah, that's right. It was very cool to take on that role because I was, I was so young at the time and looking back on it now, obviously seeing um, a lot of people in, I don't want to say old, but I was in my mid-20s when I took in that role with Andy and I'm always very grateful that he saw that I had the ability to do it because yeah. I don't think I'd be where I am now if I didn't do that role and build up the confidence to actually run as a candidate myself. Mm. Mm. But there, there is actually a lot, I know this wasn't what we're going to talk about, but there are a lot of old people in politics. Yeah, and yes. I think that's a problem because yeah. it's sort of like, it, well, there's obviously that trope of like the, the old boys club, you yeah, know, the, yes. the state, and it's, it's, it's true. But what separate from that is also just older people are more likely to be conservative and they're yeah. also um, like a lot more out of touch with certain sectors of society yeah. and also yeah. just like Carolyn yeah. mentioned before the show, like that whole reading the room yeah. type of mentality of being able to see what the sentiment yeah. is like. Oh, no. What's your experience been like with poll- like, is there like, how do we try and change that? Or is, is it possible to change? Is it just always going to be old people attracted to politics? Yeah, you are so right because basically the majority of people in politics that older generation they're not actually affected by a lot of the issues of like the you know the the cost of living crisis and the rental crisis and the housing crisis you know they they are not living through all of those things that young people are and you know they're not going to feel the worst effects of the climate emergency Mm -hmm. like young people are and young people aren't in the room making decisions Mm -hmm. um and we make decisions that affect young people every day and i'm the youngest woman in the victorian parliament 
and I'm 30, which, you know, that's young for politics. But when you think about it, you can vote from when you're 18. But I still think in Mm. our minds that we don't consider, you know, Gen Z old enough or mature enough to be in politics and I think that's... Or to respect their views even, like, mm. you know, to take their considerations seriously if yeah. they voice an opinion on... Yeah, there's things. this real idea you need life experience to go into politics and, you know, I think that living through the th- things that young people are living through is a perfect life experience yeah. because you can bring that lived experience to the table. I think the way that we overcome it, as you asked, is um, we need you know, we've had quotas in the past on, you know, women and mm. other forms of diversity. And I think we're reaching a point where we might need to look at young people as well because... Mm. Age quotas. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. because mm. young people yeah. are getting absolutely boxed out, even by, you know, the most progressive political parties are being told that they're too young, don't have enough experience, don't, you know, have an education or all of those things that you actually, you don't need to go in there. You don't need to be or a Or it's younger people that don't have the time or the money to be able to devote to... to absolutely. To, to run yeah. a campaign or to go mm. because it's not it's not as easy as just getting a yeah. job because it costs yeah. money to run a campaign a yeah. lot of money it costs money just to nominate as a candidate and, and spare time to support yeah. yourself with it and if you're yeah. living paycheck to paycheck working in hospo and you know trying to pay your rent you don't have the money or, or even time to engage with it and we need to do something to address it yeah mm. or yeah. encourage people to mm. be able to overcome those absolutely yeah, obstacles, mm. for sure. Sorry, I took us off track. No, 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 this is all fantastic stuff. Can you talk us through what was it like when you were um, appointed um, anti-medics chief of staff? Because, you know, we know you've got a really good political background. Yeah. You did a double degree yeah. law and politics, is that right? Yeah, law and politics and, and also communications. Yeah. yeah, so... So um, you're a politically astute person. Yeah. But what's it like then actually being within science? working inside parliament yeah so i think the first thing um i quickly realized is it's great it's great to have those qualifications but i think it was really cool and what complimented andy and i well was that i really think that politics should reflect society and broader society and you know i'd come um i was not just out of university i've been out of university for a few years but had the i guess the the formal education to do politics but and he was off the shop floor from construction Mm, and so he had that you know cool story to tell and between the two of us you know we were able to set up a a really good team of of staff to with a range of skills to get things done for animals but I think for me uh, what I quickly realized is I think going back to the young person thing that I guess I had to work quite hard to be taken seriously in the beginning and just those small things that sort of go on in meetings where you know I was I don't like to say boss I don't want to be called a boss but you know I was I guess the manager of staff and I would go to um, a meeting with a staff member who was a man and the person in the meeting would would talk to my colleague (laughs) and it would be like and and to his credit he would be like you'll have to ask Georgie about that. Um, So I had to, I learned really quickly that I had to sort of like really, I guess, stand up for myself, um, which is something I definitely had to learn if I wanted to be an MP as well. But um, yeah, so it was such an awesome experience, but uh, it's probably important to note that it was a very, very um, different term of parliament. We Mm. obviously lived through something that we never expected to and Mm. we had a really 
interrupted two years in the middle, which is, you know, such a shame, but it happened. Um, and we still were able to get some awesome stuff done, you know, across the four years. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting, like, it is such a shame, but also in some way, it's an opportunity that you were there to be able to influence in a positive way what we did through that emergency. Mm. And I think that's a good way to look at it. Because I remember at the time, a lot of people saying, oh, no, we're going to have another lockdown, or oh, no, we're going to have more restrictions. Mm. And I know maybe it's easy for it's not as easy for some people to think of it this way, but I was trying to look at it as though, well, you want these restrictions in place. It's it's sad that this has happened, that the mm. virus is spreading, but you don't want to get angry at the restrictions because they're that's like getting angry at having a cast when you've got a broken arm. Like mm. the broken arm's the problem. The cast is going to help it heal. Mm-hmm. The restrictions were there to stop more people dying and more people getting ill. And in the same sort of way, like it was there's there's a two ways of looking at it you you were it it sort of impacted what your original i guess Mm. timeline and what you wanted to achieve but at the same time it gave you that opportunity to be on that positive influence to actually help that happen in a better way and you only have to look at other countries and how they responded and and what they went through in comparison that was dodged a lot of the worst of it absolutely that's right and you know there was obviously a I was going to say a little bit, a lot of criticism from different sections of the community Mm. for the decisions that were made. Um, And I think all of us will stand by that we made the right ones. No Mm. one's ever going to say for a second that they were easy. They weren't. They were difficult. Um, And, you know, being the person, um, which was Andy, and then it flowed on to staff who has to stand up and, you know, represent those decisions was really, really difficult. And Mm. um, what you say is totally correct. We... It's easy to criticise now because life feels normal again. The reason life feels normal again is because we made those difficult decisions. I don't believe that we would be here doing what we're doing now if we didn't do the best thing in the interest of public health at the time to allow allow us to prepare to open up. Mm. Yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I do want to acknowledge that I'm sure that was personally really difficult for you, Mm. bearing the brunt of that. Mm. And I think some of the um, unfortunate backlash from Mm. within our community, if we we want to put it that way, to you and to other members Mm. of staff and to Annie Medic was really disgusting. I mean, things that I'm aware of and I'm sure I'm not even aware of half of it, Mm. you know, um, you're doing the best that you can in a really, really difficult circumstance that no one wants to be in, in a crisis. Um, But getting a lot of stuff done, so let's flip to the positives that, you know, I think in that um, term of, of um, you know, Andy being MP, mm-hmm. you know, from 2018 to through to last year, there was a lot that was achieved, like an awful lot that was achieved, despite the fact that we were in the most mm. disrupted, you know, mm-hmm. years that, that we've ever um, experienced. Do you want to talk about some of the, um, the big standouts for you and things that you were really so excited to see come to fruition? Yeah, I think one of the things that is very cool uh, that was a standout for me, there's a, there's a lot of them, and... Um, Obviously, going to Parliament and think I'm going to change laws and I'm going to pass bills and do motions and get on committees and task force, which you definitely do. But we realised a few months in that we could get money in the state budget for animals, and yeah. that was something that I never realised was a lever and something that had never happened until the Animal Justice Party was in Parliament. So we were able, I think, across Andy's term, it was it was probably about $30 million invested in a range of animal welfare 
um, causes and campaigns and shelters and advocacy groups. And we saw some amazing things happen, like getting funding for Lamb Care Australia. Mm-hmm. And it's like not just a, they're not just giving dogs to ca- uh, money to cats and dogs. They're giving money to farmed animals. And this is all part of changing the narrative about how we view uh, farmed animals and, you know, animals that are deemed lesser than our companion animals. So that was a very, very exciting one for me. And we introduced some grant systems that exist to this day for horses and cats and dogs and other animals that open up every year and rescue groups get to tap into them that didn't exist and wouldn't have existed if the Animal Justice Party wasn't in Parliament. Another really great one for me was following uh, the Black Summer bushfires. Mm -hmm. Um, We obviously had an awful crisis and uh, because I guess we weren't as prepared for the response for animals, Mm. we saw some really, Mm. really bad outcomes, particularly for wildlife. Mm. And we were able, by having that seat at the table, to talk to the government about how we we failed wildlife. You know, millions, potentially billions more animals died because Mm. we didn't have that emergency response in place for them. And uh, so they reformed wildlife rescue as a result of that and we put forward a proposal to treat wildlife rescue similar to as the C- CFA or the SES in the situation of a bushfire because mm-hmm. they're trained, um, yeah. they've done fire training and, you know, uh, they're competent and capable and they accepted that. So there's actually a role that people don't know exists now because we haven't had a bushfire and that's a good thing, a serious mm-hmm. bushfire. Yeah. Um, but we actually have wildlife officers now when it comes to um when it comes to bushfires that are considered separate to the people responsible for life and property. So that's something that we're going to see coming to effect at some point, most likely, and mm. animals are going to be better off for it. Um, mm. I guess if I had to pick one more, um, it would be our work towards a universal healthcare scheme for animals. Yeah. We called it Vetticare, and that was the last thing we did in Parliament before the election, and that was coming out of a vet crisis and, you know, obviously a cost of living crisis. And I Mm. strongly believe that um, no one should have to separate from their animal because they're struggling. Mm. They're a very important um, provider of comfort and, you know, support our mental health and all, you know, other important things. So the government committed to us to working towards that. And now I have the role of taking that on. So that's something we're working towards now. But Obviously, Victoria's in a little bit of financial trouble, so I think it's going to be a slow, a slow burn. But we're getting there. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And um, we might go to our sec- second song, Georgie. What was the second song that you wanted to play today? The second song that I wanted to play today is called "The Man" by Taylor Swift, and this is a song that we play in the office when we feel like there's been like a real injustice that I've been treated differently and it wouldn't have happened if I was a man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens quite a bit, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I would be complex. I would be cool. They'd say I played the field before I found someone to commit to. And that would be okay for me to do. Every conquest I had made would make me more of a boss to you. I'd be a fearless leader. I'd be an alpha type When everyone believes ya What's that like? I'm so sick of running as fast as I can Wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man And I'm so sick of them coming at me again Cause 
not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Things need topping up every now and then. More tea, Auntie. Thanks, Bob. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. Yeah, a 3CR supporter. 
Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR. Before the break, you heard Taylor Swift with The Man. And we, it's Carolyn and Trevor today. We're joined by Georgie Purcell. I'm having a great time. (laughs) Good to hear. We haven't, we haven't driven you away yet. That's good. (laughs) Fantastic. Look, in this final section, let's talk about you some more, Georgie. And what was it like going from being Andy Medic's chief of staff? So you've got you know, a whole lot of experience in the um, parliament now to then making a decision that you're going to run yourself as a candidate and you're campaigning and getting elected. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. Well done. Thank you. So I think when you set out on an election campaign, you know, in a winnable seat, you know it's a possibility you might win, but I think you convince yourself it's just never going to happen. So when it happened... I was definitely in shock. I think I'm still in shock. So I, every night I go to bed and I'm like, uh, when will it feel real that I'm a member of parliament? Um, but I'm very, very lucky, as you said, that I had those four years of experience working for Andy, which gave me a really, really strong ability to just hit the ground running because mm. I knew how parliament worked. Yeah. I knew the procedure. I knew how to write things to say in Parliament because I'd assisted Andy with it for four Mm. years. And there was all these new MPs who hadn't even stepped foot in the building before and it's like Mm, even learning that, right, like Parliament is an absolute rabbit warren and um, just knowing my way around and having that confidence and knowing a lot of the MPs and the ministers and knowing Mm. the Premier was – I was so lucky and so privileged to be in that position but – I will say that it is significantly different being the person and being the face and being the brand. And I spent many, many years in animal activism. I've been actively involved since I was 18 and I'm, I'm 30 now. And I mostly worked sort of in the background and I've always been in leadership roles, but I was always sort of... Uh, doing digital or organising things or running meetings and I'd never really been in that active spokesperson public speaking role and that has been a really, really big adjustment for me that I'm still getting used to. Wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. And did it catch you by surprise or like did you sort of know it was coming and you just obviously hadn't experienced it before or did it really surprise you how different it was to what you imagined? I have this clear moment of the first day of parliament where we all got sworn in and I used to walk with Andy to the chamber and then you're not allowed to walk into the chamber if you're not an MP. And then I just remember the second I stepped foot in there myself, I was like, oh, (laughs) this is is real. And then I was sitting in there and I was like, I do not know how I'm going to go when I have to do my inaugural speech and stand up in front of all these Mm -hmm. people. I'm quite a... I'm, I'm getting better at it, but I was quite a nervous public speaker and I think that's sort of why I always stuck to the engine room stuff because yeah. that's where mm. I felt safe and comfortable and productive. But I also think it's something that is very um, natural for women to feel that way because mm-hmm. we're sort of used to being told, no, you can't do that and you couldn't be a member of parliament or, you know, you're too young. And so I really had to remind myself that and lean into that and say, you know, you are meant to be here and and you do deserve to be here because sometimes you convince yourself that you're not. Yeah. Yeah. And carry the confidence of a mediocre 
white male. Absolutely, that's right. I need to remind myself that, like, I'm a lawyer and I'm a former union official and, you know, I've got all these qualifications. I'm more qualified than a lot of them. I strongly believe you don't have to be to go into politics, but, you know, I have the background and the experience for it. No imposter syndrome for you. Yes, (laughs) yes. So I'm fascinating to hear you say that, Georgie, because I think, yes, you are so qualified and you're absolutely who we need um, in Parliament. We need more of you, so we need to clone you a few times over. (laughs) But also, I feel like you are a natural public speaker from my observations and hearing you do – I remember you doing a presentation at one of the AJP conferences about um, being a young person um, in politics and about, you know, the the lack of women in politics. So, yeah, I think you're a natural public speaker. But it did lead me to something I really wanted to ask you about and that is how you've um, handled yourself so amazingly from from my observations of dealing with predominantly conservative media. So some of the interviews I've Mm. seen you do – on, <laughs> I won't mention yeah. um, certain media outlets, but you know, I know on, sh- you on different yeah. shows, I'm just like some of the ridiculous questions, but some of the patronizing, mm-hmm. um, you know, hosts, etc. Yeah, how have you handled all of that? Yeah, so when I first got elected, I, it was obviously a bit of a media frenzy because when you're new and you're fresh mm. and you're also mm. on the crossbench, so the government needs you, mm. everyone wants to speak to you. And I remember when I got my first media inquiry, which was like a week into being elected for a questionable media outlet, and I almost turned it down. And then I thought, well, they're going to talk about it, whether or not I'm there. Yeah. And mm. they're going to talk about me and by going on there and being, you know, sound and reasonable but stating my position, I can actually work to change the narrative yeah. of what they say. Control it mm. or exactly. at least influence it. Yeah. Exactly, of what they say about me and what they say about our movement and, mm. you know, the things that we want to achieve. And I think it's been the best experience for me in terms of what I was saying before about being a nervous public speaker because there is nothing more intimidating than having sometimes a live TV debate with someone who fundamentally disagrees with everything you stand for. And I just figure that, the I mean, I guess on handling it well, um, I believe in in what I'm saying. So, you know, and that's all I can do and you know, I, I believe in it and I'll always stand up for it. And yeah. I just think that comes across. And a lot of people have said to me since doing those segments that, uh, you know, people that are, are conservative and thought that I was some, you know, fringe extremist. animal activist You're extremist, yeah. Had, yeah. like they'll message me on social media and be like, I actually agreed with what you said. It was quite reasonable. So mm. I really learn a lot by accepting those interviews and I still mostly do them mm. unless yeah. I know it's going to be like a gotcha moment. Like you yeah. can always tell when that's coming. Well, I wanted to ask you, has there been any, have you been those gotcha moments and like how have you handled them or did you manage to sort of get out of it? Um, I haven't had one yet, right. but I think that, um, I mean, I think there's been potential for them mm. um, when I've turned down interviews, but um I think one thing about me that makes me different from most other politicians is I'm an open book and I'm very open about my past. So I've obviously spoken in my past how I worked as a stripper when I was at university and I'm celebrated for that now and people think that's very empowering and great about me and I'm bringing diversity to politics. But I can guarantee you that if I didn't own that and they found that out about me, that would have been a gotcha moment and that's something Mm. that needs 
to change. Mm. I was open about my past because I felt I had no other choice and it shouldn't be that way. You know, there's uh, politics should be about your policies and the things you believe in Absolutely. and the political issues you're championing, yeah. championing. Issues like that should only come into um, public discourse if it's fundamentally against what you're calling for mm-hmm. and, you know, it's it's hypocritical, I guess. You know, mm. we've seen that before in the past. But revealing personal lives of candidates and politicians is something that happens all the time. Yeah. And mm. I find it quite disgusting. And mm, definitely. I'm, I guess I'm trying to change that through the work that I'm doing too. Well, the other thing, I don't think people think it through because what politicians do we want? What are we going to be left with if it's only people who've never had these life experiences, yeah. who've never changed their minds or had different opinions? Mm-hmm. Like these... The, the politicians would be left with if we yeah. removed everyone that has ever had some sort of questionable or perhaps yeah. controversial past mm. is going to be just boring people that are completely out of touch, which is probably not too different from what we've <laughs> yeah. got with the majority mm. of them anyway. But that's why mm. they're popular because yeah. Yeah. they've tried to dig up dirt on them. There is no dirt on them. Yeah. And then we're just left with dumbasses yeah. that don't know what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was another member of parliament when um, I did my inaugural speech and I did my you know, moment of talking about who I was, which, I, which I'd already done, you know, for a number of years. But there was another member of parliament who um, felt the need to come out in his inaugural speech because he thought he wouldn't be able to control it. And, and you know, that's a problem. Mm. Um, that's just so sad to me. Like, yeah. Yeah. It should be about a contest of ideas and, you know, yeah. all of the experience that you're bringing to the fore and yeah. what the party stands for and the policies. And, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a long way to go. We sure do. Speaking of which, I know there's been a lot, you've faced a lot of um, sexist and really, frankly, quite vile, I don't even want to say backlash, but, you yeah. know, sort of attacks, particularly yeah. on, you know, social media. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and how you've handled that? Yeah. So mm. I guess with what I was saying before, women in public life and in politics absolutely experience gendered violence online at a mm. level, you know, that doesn't compare to male politicians. It's, you know, not even in the same ballpark. Mine's worse because I've because of my past and they think they can hold it over me or something, even though mm. I'm very open about it. And also because I'm championing issues that are mostly done by men and are male dominated and, you know, um, often they treat animals appallingly and mm. talking about the links between issues before, there's a really mm. strong link between yeah. violence against animals and violence against women. Yeah. And uh, they think they can say whatever they want to me. And it happened very quickly after I got elected. Like it happened to me during my campaign, but mm. the moment I got elected, it went up a notch. And I just sort of sat back and I thought, how am I going to handle this? Because this is not going to stop, mm. even though it needs to. So I just made a habit of calling it out because Mm -hmm. by calling it out, I'm giving them the very opposite of what they want from me. They want to belittle me and they want to make me feel small and they want me to question myself and they want me to go away and I'm not going to do that. So I've really just taken to publishing their comments online and I used to hide their names and I don't do that anymore because I figure that if they're happy to put their name to it on my public profile or in my messages and they're happy for everyone else to see it and it's really disarmed them I see I think I see quite often um two of our big priorities right now are banning duck shooting banning Mm -hmm. greyhound racing and you know sometimes I'll get sent a screenshot of 
these communities fighting amongst each other because right. they're like, stop saying stuff to Georgie. You're making us all look bad. <laughs> and so, I mean, I I do it to raise awareness and I do it to call it out because actually it needs to change. It's, yeah, you know, it it's, it's public gendered violence and we have no yeah. rules yeah. around social media. And yeah. there's I have really strong... Um, protections physically in parliament like there's a great security team and if I ever get a threat they manage it but they're left powerless if someone's just constantly abusing me mm. and um, you know we need that educational I guess narrative shift on on how we we speak to women in public life but I think we also need a legislative tool to be able to stop mm. it because I don't I haven't yet felt unsafe on the street or in my office but I feel unsafe with the thing that I carry around in my pocket every day. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to wake up in the morning and I, it's what happens to me now. I wake up in the morning and I read my abuse like it's the morning news. Mm. And I just got to say, I, I talk about the way that I'm sort of, I, I receive these awful comments a lot, but the community that I have brought in by calling it out has been amazing. Um, I receive so many lovely messages and so many lovely comments and, um, lots of people reach out to me that actually have a similar past to me who, you know, love politics and would love to get politically involved and always thought that they couldn't. So mm. I think that, um, you know, even though I have this really nasty side of being in public life, I'm very, very privileged and lucky to have this really, really awesome community of people that back me in and that far outweighs, uh, you know, loser men on the internet. Yeah. That's yeah. really positive. You're a change maker. <laughs> and especially that idea of like allyship and solidarity or that community. Yeah. I think it's really important to remember that just because you're copying the abuse and there's other people who are the, the focal point of the abuse, but it doesn't lessen everyone else's responsibility to get involved yeah. and yeah. to call it out and to be on the right side of that issue and to be on the yeah. right side of what's okay and not okay to say. And the more people just sit on the sideline and say it's not, you know, didn't happen to me or didn't happen to someone mm. I personally know yeah. or whatever, that's just enabling it to continue. Yeah, mm. you absolutely. Need, you need a critical mass of people to say this is, you know, this is not yeah. not okay. Yeah, and that's exactly what I said on uh, International Women's Day when I, when I mm. spoke about this issue of online abuse that a report actually gave a recommendation about two years ago from it was Gender Equity Victoria that wrote it and it said that we need to train male politicians to be upstanders, not bystanders when it comes to this yeah. because they have yeah. a very key role to yeah. changing the narrative and we've reached this really yuck point, I think, where it's like, oh, well, that's just what happens when you get elected. You need to deal with it. Yeah. yeah. We've only got a few minutes left, but can we quickly talk about, you mentioned some yep. priorities, duck shooting yep. and banning, um, greyhound racing. Yeah. There's a few things that you want to sort of talk about in these last Travel told me how many couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. So banning duck shooting, I'll whip through it. Banning duck shooting, we've got a select committee formed um, where we're having an inquiry into the future of native bird shooting in Victoria. If you are listening and want to see duck shooting banned, please make a submission. There's links on my Instagram page. It's very easy. You don't have to be an expert. You just need to have an opinion. We're working hard on greyhound racing. We recently secured a, a fully digital automized whole of life tracking scheme it'll be the first one in the entire country and we're hoping to use that as a tool to expose more problems and work towards a ban we're also working a lot on ending co2 systems for pigs in victoria mm, we recently fantastic. had that terrific gassing footage come out yeah. from farm transparency project yeah. uh it's very difficult being a politician and 
because obviously I want to just people to just stop this, but we need to come up with solutions to, you know, slowly end this stuff. Um, and then we also have a number of uh, wrapping up issues from Andy's terms. So the Task Force on Rehoming Pets, the inquiry into animal activism, which made some very, yes. very important recommendations. We're working with the government on that and, um, and, you know, hoping to set up some inquiries into other issues like jumps racing. We're the only state left in the whole country now. We love to call ourselves yeah, a progressive state. We're not when it comes to animals. We're absolutely not. So, yeah, there's a bunch of things that we're working on. And if anyone listening has a um, issue or a cause or campaign that relates to animals or, or anything in the social justice space, please feel free to reach out to our office anytime because we love working with other groups and do it very regularly. Good stuff. Amazing. Thanks so awesome. much, Georgie. We're going to try and link to yeah. everything you mentioned in the show in the notes, show notes yeah. as well as your Instagram, if that's probably the best way for people yeah. to monitor what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much it's for having me on. It was so much fun. Yeah. So um, much to talk about. We'll have to get you come back. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're back next week at 1 p.m. on Sundays, Freedom of Species as always. And up next is Rotations, giving you some music for an hour this afternoon. What is the last song that you've chosen, Georgie? The last song is Kiss You All Over by Exile. I know this is a very chaotic and random mix. This is our office song that we play before question time to Carmes when after I've done my prep. And it's shout out to Danny from my office. It's actually her favourite song. So I told her I'd put it on the list. Make me 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.